Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ryan Sutton on the show from Bloomberg. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. How are you, Levy? Thank you for having me. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. So you were born in Long Island. I was born in Long Island in Floral Park, and now I split my time between Manhattan and the city of Long Beach. <laughs> and what was the Long Island scene like when you were growing up? It was, you know, like, you know, I guess any um, just American suburb. Floral Park, where I grew up, is a you know, Roman Catholic stronghold. Uh, now, of course, it's also... Uh, I believe, one of America's fastest-growing or largest South Asian populations. And uh, it was partly like that when I was growing up there as well. A lot of my closest friends are uh, from the subcontinent, from India. Uh, and I grew up eating a lot of good Indian food because I grew up in Flora Park. And so I remember when I first went to Washington, D.C., just where I went to school, I went to GWU. And uh, I really craved good Indian food when I went to D.C. And that's what I missed about Flora Park. So you're always kind of into food. Of course. I mean, we all got to eat, right? <laughs> and then you also got some international exposure in terms of you traveled to Russia. Right. Uh, in fact, this is the anniversary. Uh, it was uh, 18 years ago today, I believe, 1996. Um, at this time, I was on a plane from JFK uh, to SVO, uh, Sheremetyevo Airport in Moscow. That was the first time I ever left the country. And that was, again, 18 years ago today. I was part of an exchange program um, from my high school, Far Park Memorial, and they sent us to Star City, Russia for three weeks. Uh, some schools had exchange programs to France and Switzerland and other nice places. Uh, they sent us to Russia. So be it. Uh, it, was, it was a way to get out of school for three weeks and something to put on my resume. And, you know, it's funny. I ended up falling in love with the country. I, uh, it was my major in, in college, more or less, Russian. And, uh, and I, I can't wait to watch the Sochi Olympics. Yeah, it's interesting that that's coming up, right, as we're having this conversation. Without a doubt. And I, you know, I, I often boast, but I humbly boast, you know, I come from a family of speed skaters. My grandfather was a speed skater. My father skated the 1,000-meter long track, and uh, I'm a short track speed skater, or at least I was. I didn't, never really competed, um, and it's kind of one of the regrets of my life. I'm built like a speed skater. I'm not too tall. I'm about, oh, I like to say I'm Daniel Radcliffe or Tom Cruise height, and uh, so I'm, you know, built like Apollo Antonono. I have these kind of these big speed skater quads, cyclist quads. And man, when I, when I watch short track speed skating on uh, the Olympics, you know, we only get to watch it, you know, once every four years, I can feel the adrenaline, you know, it's flowing through my blood. I, 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 the, 
few places on earth where I feel truly at ease are on an ice track uh, and on a mountain skiing, and of course on a, on the beach in Long Beach. But uh, perhaps also at a at a cocktail bar. Perhaps also at a cocktail bar or at a restaurant as well. But th- so did you? I often hear you write about caviar. Did you start? Also drinking a little vodka in the Russian time and eating a little caviar? Or how did that go with the food and the wine and the beverage? You couldn't have said it better. It's exactly how it happened. Uh, I really didn't drink that much until I was of age, at least of Russian age. You have to be 18 to drink in Russia. And although people drink before then, uh, that is the drinking age in Russia. And the first time I ever had alcohol, um, I believe at least voluntarily, was when I was 18 years old, I went back to Russia, Star City, for a few weeks after I graduated high school. And we were in the woods, absolutely gorgeous, uh, tall evergreens, surrounded by the woods in a Russian dacha. It's a kind of a Russian, wouldn't call it a country house, but, you know, a little shack in the woods. And I remember taking a sip, and this was big for me because, again, I didn't really drink. I took a sip from a can of gin and tonic. And it was a great, I remember the flavor. It's one of my most vivid taste memories. I remember that, that gentle sting or burn of alcohol. I remember that, you know, diluted taste of quinine or whatever they used in that particular can of gin and tonic. Of course, the funny thing is, is in Russia, you can get cans of gin and tonic. You can even get them in Coke-sized bottles, or at least when I lived there. Is that true? Mixed already? Uh, pre-mixed. Uh, I don't know what the proportion was. Uh, it's It's probably slightly uh, less than the strength of a regular gin and tonic you get here in the States. But that was my my first voluntary experience uh, with alcohol. I was 18 years old, just finished high school. And again, uh, I, I love the taste of it. And so I, uh, gin and tonics to this day are one of my favorite drinks. And I associate it with, you know, uh, being in the Russian woods and surrounded by some of my awesome Russian friends. And of course, I had caviar for the first time in Russia. And man, the first time you have caviar, it, it never tastes good. And it, it certainly didn't for me. It wasn't good caviar. It wasn't Caspian caviar. I could probably only count on five fingers uh, the amount of times in my life I've had Caspian caviar. And probably three or four of the times, it wasn't Caspian caviar. And someone was telling me it was. But I think I was maybe 16, 17, or 18 and when I was in Russia. It was one of the various trips. And uh, they made a butterbrod, is what they call it in Russia. They take a slab of bread and they put either krasna ikra, which is red caviar, or churna ikra, which is black caviar, and they spread it all over. And to me, it was just a fishy, buttery mess. But you eat it enough and you get used to it. And then when I finally had the good sturgeon stuff here in the States, I, I, I really got used to it. Uh, I think the first time I had really good sturgeon stuff was at Per Se. I was uh, 24, 25 years old. It was kind of like a graduation Christmas present combined. Uh, it was 2004, November. I went with my mother. It's kind of a combined Christmas graduation present. I think the menu then was $150 per person. Service was not included. And I had the oysters and pearls course, which of course One is... One of those classics. Yeah, it's a classic. It's uh, the white sturgeon caviar, I believe, from California with, uh, I think the oysters he was using were Island Creek. It's, I believe they were poached in butter and served in a tapioca and a burr fondue. And uh, I wasn't crazy about the caviar, actually. I was still developing a taste for caviar, but I remember the taste of the oysters and how much I loved them. And I remember them serving with sake, which I loved, which reminded me of the taste of vodka. And, uh, and yes, of course, I learned to develop a taste for vodka in Russia as well. And that's when I lived there for a year. And that's when I started to drink vodka like a Russian for better or for worse. But what was uh, what was Russia like at that time? Uh, it was a, how should I say it? When I first went in 96, uh, Yeltsin was still in power. He was not yet reelected for the second term. And, of course, that was a serious election when he was facing off against Gennady Zyuganov, 
uh, a Russian communist, and that was later in 1996, and there was a, a real threat that the communists in 96 were going to turn back the clock a bit. Now, when I returned in 99, 2000 for the school year, and, and that's when I, I spoke Russian by that time, uh, I spoke it pretty well for what it's worth, Putin had just come to power uh, as prime minister, and the country immediately became a better place to live. It was also a scary place to live because there was the apartment bombings uh, when I first went in 99. Uh, all Russians know about the 99 apartment bombings. It was uh, essentially their Oklahoma City. There were also bombings at the, the Maniege near Red Square. And so it was kind of a scary time, but Putin made things a lot better, and Putin enjoyed tremendous popularity when he first rose to power as prime minister and then president. Uh, things are a little bit different now with the rollback of democracy, so to speak. Uh, but that said, you know, everyone is happy that Russia was quickly becoming a better place uh, when I first moved there. And that was a good thing. You know, uh, one time I got, just to give you an example of how much order was being reestablished in Russia. Uh, you know, I had the, you live in Russia, you have to bribe the cops a few times. It's just, you know, way of life. Uh, one time cops came into my apartment and they stole $300 from my apartment. I managed to find some other cops to get the $300 back to me. I had to pay those cops $50 to get the money back, but at least the, you know, the, the, the bigger cops told me that, listen, you know, there's a new order in Russia. And so I got 300, again, $300 stolen from me by the cops in my apartment. More cops got the money back for me. And I only lost $50 in the transaction. And I remember the guy telling me, the, the big cop, listen, you know, a new order in here, or as Putin used to call it, uh, a diktatur zakona, which means a dictatorship of the law, I think is the, the, his own term that he used. Um, but of course, um, I haven't been there in a while and, and things have, have changed in a, in a different way. Did you have an interest in international relations? Yeah, well, that was my, my, my plan was to be a, a a diplomat or, or work for the government in some capacity. And, you know, like a, anyone who graduated in 2001, I graduated in 2001, there was a swell of patriotism in, in the GAR class after September 11th. And uh, so I applied for a few jobs at the government, but I ended up in, in human rights instead, uh, working for the International Campaign to Ban Landmines. And uh, I also interned for a, a few times for, at Human Rights Watch. And, well, the landmine job, it worked out for a year and I loved it. And, you know, human rights are a passion of mine particularly civil and political human rights, uh, old school, blue collar human rights, as I call them, international humanitarian law, you know, rights of civilians in war, rights of prisoners in war. Uh, that career didn't work out. And, uh, you know, it was one of the most devastating days of my life is when, you know, I went into the offices of Human Rights Watch and, you know, they told me they wouldn't renew my contract for the, the landmine campaign job. And, uh, you know, I went back home, uh, waited a week, and I, I walked into a restaurant and uh, I needed a job, and I, I took a job as a waiter. And that single job changed the, the course of my life. And I'm, you know, I'm still slightly bitter feelings about losing that human rights job. But I'm, I'm glad I, I ended up in this profession because it's, it's nice to be able to do things that that make people happy. Not, there's not a need for human rights. I, it's, I follow the work of Human Rights Watch probably on a daily basis. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad I get to do what I do now, and I get to hopefully make people happy a little bit. And. So you worked at the restaurant, and what did you do there? I was a waiter, and the that was my second wait job. My first wait job was at Clyde's of Georgetown, and uh, that was in 2001. My second wait job was after I lost the Landman campaign job, and that was later in 2002. That was at Zola Restaurant. A Zola Restaurant is now the location of Minibar in Washington, D.C., Minibar being uh, Washington's most expensive restaurant, $250 per person. Um, but at Zola, it was fairly portably priced. I think the most expensive entree was probably $25. It was fine dining in D.C. at the time, at least. It was in the hip pen quarter, 
right by the relatively new, maybe within 10 years, MCI Center. And it was an exciting time. It was an exciting restaurant. And I got the job by reading a lot about wine. And that's how I got the Clyde's job as well. I didn't have a whole lot of weight experience. But I knew that reading about wine was intellectual. And it was not necessarily easy, but it had a certain taxonomy to it that came to me very easily. You know, studying languages, again, Russian was a major in college. Uh, studying languages, it came very easy to me because it's just a taxonomy. You, you learn the rules and you can apply the rules to the language and, and things make sense. It's very orderly. You know, people always talk about, you know, Russian and Chinese whenever being so difficult. But you know, what I always say is, you know, people wake up every morning and they speak Russian, they speak Chinese. It's not rocket science. You know, same thing with wine. And there's a taxonomy to it. It came very easily to me. I can't say I remember all of it, but that's how I bluffed my way into these restaurant jobs by wowing them about you know, what to pair a, you know, lobster with or what to pair salmon with, what have you. And you know, I stayed in that job for a couple of months, and, and that's when I knew I, I kind of wanted to become a food writer. And were you a good waiter? I was an okay waiter. I was a more knowledgeable waiter than I was an efficient waiter. I definitely wasn't the fastest waiter, um, but I probably gave the, the best wine recommendations of anyone in the restaurant. I also had, I probably had, I was rated as having the best posture when I worked at Clyde's of Georgetown. I was I was a big believer in efficiency of movement, and it 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 just bothers me so when I see people slouching around these I'm restaurants. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, you're not slouching at all, Eli. Uh, uh, Levy, I'm sorry, you're not slouching at all. Um, but that that does irritate me because you know part of the steps of service are you know the waiters being fairly in, in, invisible, and when you have a waiter slouching and you have a waiter who's not moving in an elegant way, that that interrupts your sight, that interrupts your meal. Uh, waiters should move in an in orderly fashion. They should move elegantly. I remember when I there was a big fuss about when they said per se was hiring choreographers. I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. Um, they are elegant and they are efficient, and so are the waiters at Eleven Madison Park at many other New York restaurants. And that efficiency of motion makes for an easier and more calm dining experience. Simply one of the things you don't notice. And when you don't notice, that's a good thing. And so you went to work writing about restaurants. When did that happen and how did that come about? Well, I went back to, I kind of left D.C. with my tail between its, my legs. Uh, D.C. kind of ate me up and spit me out. Uh, it's a beautiful city. It's, it's not one I have any intention of returning to. And uh, so I came home, my tail between my legs, uh, went to Columbia for international affairs. Uh, the goal was either to you know, work in human rights or work in the government or to work in food writing, if that worked out. Spent two years there, and I taught myself to write a column for the school newspaper. Uh, it's called The Communique, and uh, I realized I wanted to become a columnist after that. And I, I figured this is something I could do. I had lots of smart kids in, in my classes, and, and quite frankly, they were a lot smarter than me. And I said to myself, listen... I could be an analyst for the government, but I'll never be the best one because these people are, are at a, a different level than where I am. They're, this is what they do, and that's not my niche. And, and I wrote this humor column, and I said, you know what? I, can be, I think I can be a great columnist one day. I think this is something I can – you know, people say it's, it's, you know, creativity is something that has to come naturally. I believe in creativity as work, and I'm good at making creativity work on a, on a weekly basis. And, and so it worked out. You know, I got a job with the government when I was waiting for that – clearance, uh, timeout hired me as an unpaid intern. They realized I knew a thing or two about food and one thing led to another and I was a, a freelance food critic for them. And what was that experience like? Uh, it, was, it was fun. I remember eating at restaurants I never would have heard of. I, I had never heard of uh, restaurants like Dunguri on the Upper East Side. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, what, with all the sochu, with all the sochu and all the all the soba and all the lovely Japanese women serving delicious dishes. I remember one of the waiters uh, leaned over to me 
And she said in my ear, by the way, if you didn't order those yellowtail cheeks, I would have after service. So she's kind of tossing me a little shade. And that was on my my second of two visits. Uh, it was actually a fun con. It wasn't so much a con, but we were only supposed to visit the restaurants once, you know, very limited budget. I wasn't the food critic. We were just these freelance food critics writing little blurbs. And, and that's how I got my start. And I said, listen, if I go by myself, I can go twice instead of taking someone else. And they agreed to it, which is really cool. So the first time I went to Dunguri, I sat uh, across from Matt Lauer, which is cool. It was one of the first celebrities I had seen in real life. And the second time I saw the late, great Sidney Pollock. Of course, he was, oh, really? he was not late at that point. He was still alive and well. Uh, I'm 99% sure it was him. And we all know Sidney Pollock from Three Days of the Condor. And, Serpico. And, and Serpico. And, you know, one of my favorite modern movies, The Interpreter, which I really loved, uh, with Nicole Kidman and Sean Penn. And, you know, a great Upper East Sider and made mo- a guy who made movies about the, you know, Midtown East and the east side of Manhattan. Pretty and good actor, a, too. A, a pretty good actor, too, and Michael Clayton. Um, and I think he even, I think he even had lung cancer in a, one of the final episodes of The Sopranos. Uh, that was his role, I believe. I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, he was a great actor, a great director. And it was, I was just so grateful that my job sent me to a place where I could see all these awesome people eating this awesome food that I'd never heard of before. I'd never had soba before. And that's the first time I had it. These lovely buckwheat noodles, which are very difficult to make. And, and, uh, I knew I had to, to keep doing that. And I eventually did. I, I, I got a job at Bloomberg as an audio visual technician and they realized a new thing or two about food. You know, one thing led to another and, and I'm their food critic. Were you kind of, in a way, maybe fascinated by the power culture of New York? Because when you say, I sat next to Lauer, I sat next to Sidney Pollock. I mean, I know what that feeling is like, and there's a sense of it's happening. Yeah, yeah. it's, listen, this is, uh, it's the greatest city in the world. And I, I always tell people, I, I get, part of my heart is always in Russia, and I consider Russia one of my, you know, adopted home countries. I, I really do love it there. But, you know, New York, uh, I'm one of those people, I'd have a hard time moving outside of the city. And I love everything about it. And, you know, one of the privileges you know, of working for Bloomberg is being able to, you know, give a voice to our, our great financial community and being able to, uh, of course, write for everyone, um, but of course, you know, write for the, the hardworking men and women of our city's financial community who provide so many tax dollars to our city and, and help uh, them and, of course, everyone uh, find out where to eat, uh, not just the expensive restaurants, um, but at the, the regular restaurants. You know, you know, people often say, you know, you're writing for Bloomberg, you, you write for rich people, you're writing about per se, and that's not the case. I've never really reviewed per se, except for the Solana per se. Uh, you know, these guys, uh, or these men and women, I should say, uh, there's a growing amount of women in the financial industry. Of course, there needs to be more, just like there need to be more women in the kitchen um, at the highest levels. Um, but that said, uh, a lot of these guys don't want to eat at, no one eats at per se every night. No one, that's that's not a normal way of living. People don't go to Masa twice a week. Uh, there are actually, I, I take that back, there are people, uh, or at least I was told um, by their old general manager, Vedi Nishikawa, that there was one guy who ate there once or twice a week. But people don't. Having been an ex-employee, I can confirm that there was. You certainly can. But people don't eat food like that twice a week. Uh, they eat everyday people food. They eat at, you know, uh, they eat at pizzerias. They eat at they eat at a hot dog stands. They eat at steakhouses for better or for worse. And you know, listen, a, a lot of these people who do do well for themselves financially, they didn't get that way by eating at the world's most expensive restaurants. Um, and they didn't make their money um, by buying and selling Maseratis. They they made their money by you know making money on the dime, on the on the nickel, and on the penny, on the margin. And you know they like to eat like the rest of us. And they like to save money like the rest of us. And that means they don't like to get ripped off like the rest of us. And so that's why I've always made 
uh, value, you know, such a strong component of my columns. And I think that's found a particularly receptive audience with the, with the, the financial audience I have and with the everyday audience I have. And when I read your columns, at least today, um, I find the text to be very punchy. It's usually short sentences. It usually makes a quick point. Often uh, there's some kind of analogy to something that a guy would understand, like whether that's hunting or sports or an everyday activity where you're like, oh, okay, you just made a, a fairly you know, arcane food subject very relative to my everyday life. And there's often a strong implementation of financial numbers and worth. Like in the same way that I might evaluate a stock, I feel like you evaluate a restaurant in terms of is this worth purchasing? I'm going to eat food either way, but is this the right purchase to make vis-a-vis what it's going to cost me versus this other place that I could also go? Absolutely. And that's the the servicey aspect of what I do. You know, when you when I think of a food review, I, I try to bring four things to it. I try to bring the vicarious experience, which is, of course, you know, you're you're at your computer and you're reading my review during lunch hour and I want to bring you to a different place. So that's part number one, the vicarious experience. Part number two, perhaps, is the context. Why is this place important? It's not just a steakhouse, but it's next steakhouse. It's uh, run by Grant Ockitson and Nick Kokonis and they're perhaps trying to do something different and they're charging XX dollars. So that's the context. Uh, the third part, of course, is value. And that's you know what I particularly like to bring to it because there's been a, especially in food magazines, a de-emphasis on value. And for something to be aspirational, you don't want to tell your readers that this costs uh, $1,000. You simply want to say it's a great experience and we'll maybe put the cost at the bottom of the article or perhaps we won't even mention it at all. And I think that's unfortunate. And especially in, in some of the, in the culinary magazines, there needs to be a, a focus on that. I'm not criticizing anyone in particular. I'm kind of making a, you know, a general argument. And then, so that's three parts. The fourth part, of course, is the uh, also service the I like this and I don't like that. And that can be kind of the boring part of a food review. So you want to bring, you know, like I said, you want to bring analogy. Uh, Food only tastes salty, sour, sweet, spicy, and bitter. That's about all the flavors there are. Everything else is a sense of smell. And uh, so when you're dealing with these senses of smell and and why food is important, uh, you have to bring, you know, analogy into it. And, and, and that's just part of, you know, food writing. And sometimes it's a travesty against language, but sometimes you're just trying to grope for how something tastes. You know, I remember reading, you know, Wine Spectator with my mother when I was aspiring wine writer, never worked out. And we were, you know, I remember just reading uh, one of the descriptions of, uh, I don't know if I'm saying this right, Freshent Champagne, you know, the Cordon Negro. Is that correct? Uh, and I think it's called Freshnay, but... Freshnay or whatever. And I, I remember Wine Spectator said it, it tasted like pencil shavings. And I didn't understand that because, you know, who ate pencil shavings and how would they know what it tasted like? But in reality, uh, I'm glad they wrote that because they were simply looking for a way to uh, describe something that someone didn't normally taste. And sometimes you have to go for the inedible to describe what you're eating. And the other thing I, I find about your writing is it often goes to a bottom line, which is what I come back. And if so, why would I come back? You know, would I come back for a drink at the bar? Would I come back on a romantic date? Would I come back on a business date? Sometimes I find that answer to that last question almost like the summary review, like in the way that wine publications give points to something. It's like if you just want to read one line from the review, the would I go back line is often, I think, one of the more valuable of the whole piece. No, thank you, and I appreciate that. And that's something I didn't invent myself. That was, you know, the Bloomberg questions. That's something that was given to me. And so credit to my 
old editor Manuela Holterhoff or whoever did that for for inserting that in. And that's important because, you know, sometimes I'll, you know, write like a a three-star or four-star review of someplace. Will I be back? Yeah, maybe in a few years when I can afford it. And and again, that gets back to the the question of value, especially the question of of comparative value. You know, if one restaurant is serving... um, you know, a bottle of champagne for $175 and it's Veuve Clicquot, uh, you probably know it's a club-like restaurant because they're seeking a club-like margin on it. They're serving a $100 Veuve Clicquot bottle of champagne. They're probably a more normal restaurant, even though it's kind of a high price for a bottle of Veuve Clicquot that you can get, you know, at a, a liquor shop for $45. And that's why you're probably not even drinking Veuve Clicquot at a restaurant if you're smart because you want to go for a nice, cute little grower champagne that you, you can't get anywhere else in your neighborhood liquor shop. And you're drinking this lovely grower champagne at, say, I don't know, maybe Reynard in, in Brooklyn, uh, where you can, you can have that, that, that taut little wine, um, that you couldn't get anywhere else, uh, probably picked by, I think her name is Lee Campbell. She's great. Uh, who does the wine there. Uh, I think she brings a lot to this city's, uh, this wine scene with, I think that's the, the wine list, the highlight of that restaurant. And, and, and that's the beauty of drinking a wine at a restaurant. It's, it's an experience you just as, you know, when I look for a wine at a restaurant, just as you, you eat something at a restaurant you couldn't make at home. You want to drink something at a restaurant that you you couldn't pour at home or find at your neighborhood liquor shop. And that's why I like Lee Campbell's uh, wine list so much. I think it's a really fair point, and especially in an era where there is so much choice. It's nice to have someone guide you through to really interesting new choices. But was value always such a strong concern for you when you first started writing? Was it something you talked about or did it develop over time? And if it developed, what were some of the key moments where you said, boy, I need to really consider this more? Uh, one of the key moments was, I think it was my first month at Bloomberg and I got my first paycheck and, um, oh gosh, I really wanted to have a good meal and I wasn't writing for food about them yet, but I figured, you know, if I get this, this paycheck, I should, you know, take myself out for a you know, a nice meal to myself. I think it was the day after Thanksgiving, and I took myself to WD-50. Uh, I did the tasting menu. I sat there by myself. I felt like a real baller. I said, I'll have the tasting menu. You know what? Do the wine pairing, too. I felt, you know, I felt really cool saying that. And uh, the wine pairing then, I think, was about $45. And the menu, I believe, was $95. The menu is now $155. And so altogether, after tax and tip, I think I spent around $180. So I took the train back home to Long Beach. I commuted to to Bloomberg the first year I was there. And my father said, you know, where'd you go for dinner? I said, WD-50, how much did it cost? Uh, I said, $180. And he looked at me and he didn't talk to me for the rest of the night. And I don't think he even said goodnight to me because he was just so aghast that I had spent that much money on food. Um, my, incidentally, my father is like, I think, one of the bigger proponents of fine dining now. He loves Blue Hill Stone Barns, you know, $208 per person for the tasting menu. He loves craft. Um, he loves these restaurants, but, you know. Like him, uh, we were both just getting used to the fine dining world, and that kind of raised an eyebrow. And he was he was mad about that, even though it was my money. And so that I, that was a a hard lesson for me that I, I really needed to have a focus on value because for some people, is how was the meal? He didn't ask me how was the meal. He asked me how much it cost because that's what people ask, and and that's what everyday people ask. Where'd you go? How much was it? And so and that was kind of the first seed uh, for me in starting a, a site I founded called the Price Hike. Uh, the second big seed was. Uh, per se, a few years ago, raised their price from $270, service included, to $295, service included. And uh, I thought about writing about it. Maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. And I just saw how over the course of two months, it, it, it changed a few years ago at a New Year's Day. No one really reported about it. And, you know, I, I briefly tweeted about it and, and, and people picked it up and people thought it was important. So I figured, 
if, if prices are something that restaurants are de-emphasizing, you know, you get releases every single day about this new dish or that new dish. This guy is serving, you know, Ortolan or whatever. You can't serve Ortolan, it's illegal. Um, but you get so many press releases about that. But there was always a de-emphasis on prices because, you know, restaurants, for better or for worse, probably for a certain amount to the better, want their abodes to be non-transactional experiences. You know, you want to go into this restaurant and you want to have a good time and you want to de-emphasize the prices. And I, I respect that. And that's why I also respect, you know, what Grant Dockett's and Nick Akonis are doing in, in Chicago at Alinea by having people pay before. I think that's great. But again, you know, I never got the press release about the price increase and not a whole lot of people were doing it. And that's when I said, you know what, maybe I can make a niche for myself because, you know, restaurants say, oh, it's not about the money, but yeah, it is because if you can't afford it, you can't eat there. And so that's, that's how I got started on that, you know, both with my father being angry with me for spending so much money at WD-50 and, and uh, people not realizing that per se had raised their prices, you know, a month or two after it happened. Did you find that there was somewhat a lack of transparency when you were trying to actually hunt this information down? Not just that it was de-emphasized, but it was actually difficult to find or was it easy to find? Well, it depends. Menu prices were always easy to find. And even though I'm bad at math, I was always good with numbers. And so I look at a number one day, I look at the number the other day, and I can tell pretty easily if it changed uh, on, on any particular restaurant. The less transparent things have always been the wine lists, which is interesting. Um, and I'm not sure why, because it's, you know, menus often change. Food menus often change more frequently than the wine. Uh, yet the wine list isn't always updated frequently. Kudos to Per Se, by the way, who update their wine list very frequently. And kudos to them for updating their menu every single day. In fact, Per Se has a wine list, that, a little iPad uh, wine list you can download, and it tells you how much each of their, you know, wines by the glass and wines by the bottle cost. But I've always found a certain uh, lack of transparency on wine lists, uh, a lack of transparency on cocktail lists, and lack of transparency on wine pairings. Because uh, again, you know, restaurants want to de-emphasize prices. They when you go in, hey, have a good time. Oh, the wine costs hundred bucks. You know, who cares? You know, you had a good time. Well, you know, I do care because I only have so much to to spend every week. And so yeah, um, um, certain restaurants that have to call up and have them email their wine list to me. Uh, still to this day, there are, I believe there are six or seven three Michelin-starred restaurants in New York. Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, 11 Madison Park, Jean-Georges, uh, Le Bernardin, uh, Per Se, Massa, and I think I'm missing one, Danielle. There you go. Seven restaurants with three Michelin stars. We still do not have an online wine list for Le Bernardin, and we still do not have an online wine list for restaurant Jean-Georges. I honestly, I, I it boggles my mind. Listen, Eric Park, great guy. Uh, Jean-Georges von Gerichten as well. Two of our cities, probably our best restaurants, and, and yet they don't have online wine lists at two of our most expensive restaurants. Uh, that's unacceptable. It really is. And especially with a, such a charismatic guy like Aldo Sum working the, the wine program at, at Le Bernardin. I mean, listen, and, and the funny thing is I've never been ripped off on wine at either of the restaurants. Uh, I think I've given Aldo budgets, and he's poured me great wines, and he's poured them me those great wines out of great glasses. I have no complaints about the wine service. I'll go even further. Le Bernardin, probably some of the city's best wine service, if not the best. Just put your stupid wine list online. Just get it done, you know? You often do include the wine pairings in, in the price equation, whether it was for the price hike or whether it's in one of your reviews where you say – this will cost you this much for two people before the wine pairing and this much after. Do you frequently partake in wine pairings when you when you dine? Um, did it become sort of a, a way for you to express how much an average beverage experience would would cost or why the, the uh, emphasis? Uh, I do do wine pairings a lot. 
um, because it's the most exact number you can use to, on how much you'll spend wine at a tasting menu restaurant. You know, of, of all the prices I can pick, oh, you might spend $70 in this bottle or $200 in that bottle. I can't quantify that. I can't quantify how, how much money someone is going to spend on wine from a broader bottle or glass perspective. But if they're advertising a $145 wine pairing at 11 Madison Park on top of the $225 menu, we know how much the vast majority of patrons are going to spend on wine because uh, they're probably um, suggesting the wine pairing at a lot of those tables. And that's even more so at restaurants like Alinea, where they, they push the wine pairing pretty hard. Uh, I'm okay with that, by the way. I think Alinea has one of the best wine pairings in the country. And same thing with Next. I've, I've loved my beverage pairings there as well. It would be nice if they listed the price of the, the beverage pairings at Alinea on their website. They do that with Next, incidentally. Uh, I remember the first time, the only time I was at Alinea, Again, one of the world's great restaurants, one of my favorite meals ever. Uh, the menu back then was a, believe it was $180 a person. Now it's a little bit more. Now it starts at 210 And uh, I sat down and the captain came up to me and said, would you like to do the wine pairing? I said, can I take a look at the wines by the glass list? And her response was, uh, we really don't have, you know, a, a wines by the glass list. We have a very limited one, in fact. And, you know, most people do the pairing. And I was a little bit taken back by that. And I said, you know, how much is the pairing? She said, it was two-thirds the cost of the menu. To which, to which my response was, well, for people who are not mathematically inclined, how the F much is that? And she said it was $150, which is reasonable. So why don't you just say that? And again, I had the wine pairing, and it was great. Uh, I loved it. And I, anyone goes to a linea, I recommend the wine pairing. But... Do me a favor, just publish the wine pairing price and tell them what's going to be on the wine pairing. And three, have a buy the glass list. I think that would make a lot more sense. And, but, uh, you know, it's a long way of answering the question. Yeah, I do like wine pairings, not just from a value perspective, but because of these long tasting menu restaurants, you know, it's fun to have a different glass paired with a, 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 you know, a different dish. In fact, I think it was Eric Asimov who wrote about the wine pairings at Alinea. And he went with his son. He wrote about this in one of his New York Times columns. And his, I think his son did the non-alcoholic and he did the alcoholic. And they, and, and they do some fun stuff over there. Of course, the downside of the wine pairing is that I find that my particular stomach has a hard time taking all, all the sugar of wine. I don't, I don't mean the sweetness of wine, but wine, like any beverage, has a certain amount of sugar to it. And so I, I, I never feel quite right after a, a full wine pairing, not from an inebriation standpoint, but simply from a, a stomach standpoint. It doesn't feel that good. And so I'm trying to think if there's been any particular restaurant where the, the wine pairing has you know, treated me well, hasn't torn up my stomach. Uh, Alinea is probably one of them because I remember having a cocktail at the Violet af Hour afterwards. A Violet Hour is a famous bar in Chicago you know, in the, the speakeasy style. But I also remember having uh, a wine pairing at 11 Madison Park and, and not feeling quite right afterwards. Uh, they also put a little bottle of brandy or, or cognac on the table afterwards to help the food move through the stomach. And which is a nice touch, and so perhaps we can blame individual excess as opposed to the restaurant for that. You know, one thing I always tell people with the wine pairing is you don't finish every single glass. Not that every restaurant gives you four ounces for each pour, but they give you more than they should. And so the key is if you're doing a wine pairing, uh, don't finish the entire glass. Just sip at it. And it's, it really is, I think, lovely and fun and indulgent to have. I remember I was at Corton when I was reviewing it. I gave them four stars. Uh, closed shortly afterwards, which didn't feel great. But I remember having 10 glasses in front of me, and it was fun with each individual course uh, to see how a particular, you know, Riesling or Gewürztraminer would develop over the course of a meal. Uh, I love how a white wine goes from cold to warm and how the flavors open up, and I think it's absolutely fascinating and fantastic. And 
Now, listen, you know, we're in this age of, of chefs choosing everything for us. So I'm not opposed to uh, wine directors and sommeliers choosing everything for us. I'm, I'm a fan of that curated experience. That's one of the beauties of going to a restaurant. You know, if you're not going to ask the chef at a tasting menu restaurant to give you turkey instead of steak if there's only steak on the menu. And just the same, why don't you let that sommelier pick the Riesling instead of the Cabernet you drink? Because you only drink Cabernets at home with everything, whether it be fish or game or or what have you. Why not let this be a curated experience? My only uh, requirement, or my only suggestion is if, if it is going to be a curated experience, you know, let me know what this is. Give me a map of your wine pairings. Tell me what I'm going to be drinking in advance and tell me my, how much I'm going to be paying. There, there are restaurants that will ask you if you want the wine pairing and they won't even tell you how much it is, which I think is, which I think is awful. Uh, you know what? You know, and I, I made that little funny little anecdote about Alinea about not really having a, a wines by the glass list or a very limited one. I can think of, and I won't name them, I can think of at least four restaurants off the top of my head uh, that have the same policy. Uh, we don't really have a wines by the glass list, just whatever's on the pairing and maybe we'll start the pairing and we'll keep it going and you can tell a stop if you don't like. And so I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that. The flip side of the coin is, and I'll talk more about Alinea because I think it's an interesting restaurant. I remember when the wait captain was talking to the table next to us and, and the table was scared about getting the wine pairing. And she said, how about this? Uh, you can start doing the pairing and if you find it's too much wine, uh, you can stop and you know we'll only charge you for that much. Uh, I don't know if they still do that. I thought that was really cool. And again, that's why I love Alinea. Um, I, I was at Grace in Chicago recently and uh, you know, this, this weight captain, he could see I wasn't drinking a whole lot of my wine pairing. And I think the, uh, the last pour, it, it looked like he poured me about a good three ounces of, uh, what's that stuff you put in a Kia Royale? Champagne or creme de cassis? Uh, creme de cassis. Okay, I, I think just, he poured me creme de cassis okay. and it looked like it was about three ounces of that. And I was like, dude, you really think I'm going to drink all that? And he could tell I was only barely sipping at all of these. And, and to me, I, I felt like I had wasted a little bit of my money at Grace. It's a fine restaurant, but I, 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 they didn't get the wine pairings completely as right as they should have. And it, it feels like that is the, the key for you, is to feel like, yes, if I'm going to go out to, to one of these high-end places that's offering a luxury experience, I just want that experience. That seems to be the end of the day thing. Right. You, you want the full experience and you want the, uh, the experience that they pick for you. You just have to be a little bit more transparent about that experience. You know, one of the kind of seeming benefits of working for Bloomberg is that there have been a fair amount of high-end restaurants that you reviewed. I mean, a number of the places you just talked about are, are fairly expensive. Um, and, you know, you've you've gotten to travel to different cities to try high-end restaurants. Have you seen high-end restaurant culture change at all over the period of time that you've been reviewing restaurants? High-end restaurants will always be high-end restaurants. They'll always be, you know, highly curated experiences and you know, high-end restaurants uh, will always be expensive. That's why they're called high-end restaurants. To me, the more interesting thing is happening on the flip side about how we're trying to make high-end restaurants or a certain type of high-end dining more accessible to all. And that's why I'm really fascinated by what they're doing at, say, restaurants like Contra, which are serving a, a five-course tasting menu with no choices. And I don't think that's something we've really seen any of in New York. You know, because when you, you think of even going to restaurants, say, like Danielle, and you get the $125 or $120, I forget the exact price, three-course menu, and there are tons of choices. And then we get the tasting menu, and there are you know, fewer choices. So it's interesting to see chefs at the, the lower end embrace that slightly dictatorial model. And I think it's fun because you know, as we 
Um, as fine dining becomes more expensive or as old dining becomes more expensive because of rising food costs and because of high, rising labor costs, and labor costs should rise because the, you know, the hardworking women and men of our hospitality industry deserve to make more. Uh, as these costs rise, uh, it can be tougher to bring this type of dining uh, to the masses. And I think the masses do deserve it. And so I think one of the solutions to, to that uh, is the Contra model or the Chateaubriand model, as I have it in France. You just walk into a restaurant and it costs, you know, $80, $60, whatever. At Contra, it costs $55. And you get a that curated experience and you, you walk in and have a great meal. Well, what if you don't like it? Well, then go to a different restaurant that night. You know, it's funny. I'm, you know, my review for Contra is, is coming out pretty soon and it, they serve monkfish for a while. I hate monkfish. It's, it's one of those few things I just don't like. I think it's the matzah of the fish world. I think it has no flavor. Even when done right, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it. And so I actually, I didn't go there a whole bunch of times because I would call up every day. I'm like, what are you serving tonight? Monkfish, sorry, click. And I finally started going when they started serving cod and some other stuff. And I had a really good time there. And so that's, you know, to me, that's the way an ideal restaurant should work. Serve a, a limited menu so you can save on your costs because you're, you're going to run your costs up if you're serving these, you know, goat testicles every night when no one orders them. So just serve, you know, a, four or five different things, no choices. And if you don't like that, well, go to another restaurant and maybe they have only five different things as well. And if you don't like that, go to the third restaurant. And that's, that would be an ideal situation. This whole concept of choice, I, I find it funny. You know, people call it the dictatorship of the tasting menu. When I was growing up, I never asked my mother for, you know, spaghetti instead of lamb because she was cooking lamb. I, I ate what she, what she served me. Um, and people walk into restaurants and all of a sudden they feel like they have choice. Well, what did you do when you're growing up? It just doesn't make sense to me. You know, were you one of the types that asked, you know, picked a, you know, from eight different things when your father or mother was cooking you food? Incidentally, my mother cooked for the, you know, first 10 years when I was growing up. And then my father cooking over, took over the cooking duties when my mother started going back to school. She went to law school. Um, but that's an aside. So, yeah, I'm, choice in restaurants is a funny thing to me. Uh, I don't need it at all, anywhere, quite frankly. Except that these, I do like the concept of these small plate restaurants, which are fun as well. Um, go to a restaurant and kind of create your own tasting menu. So I, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. I, I do like that sense of, you know, small plate choice where you can, you know, build your own tasting menu for a pretty affordable price. You mentioned cocktails. Is, is that something that also you have an interest in? No, I love cocktails because, like I said, you know, some of my first experiences with, with alcohol were of hard alcohol and not with wine. You know, being a 20-year-old in Russia, in the Russian woods, and, you know, doing shots of vodka out of Dixie cups. And Russian shots, we actually, your shots are a little bit smaller in Russia. When you go to these American bars, shots are usually about, you know, one ounce to 1.5 ounces. Russian shots, I find, usually are a little bit smaller because you're drinking over the course of an evening. And you're when you do do a shot, you actually do the, the full shot, at least when I was there. And so shots are a little bit smaller there. So we'd be at shot number 10. Uh, it wouldn't be 10 full shots, but still, you'd be slightly drunk. And I remember, you know, by the end of it, you're man, it, you're toasting to the lemons that were crushed while making this vodka. And things get pretty crazy. Toasts are a big deal in Russia. You don't just sip at your vodka. You, you know, toast. You know, with this, uh, in Russian you say, which means with this small glass, but with great feeling, I want to propose a toast to all the women who are present. So crazy stuff like that. But yeah, I love hard alcohol and I love cocktails. Uh, the most, you know, for me, the, the most important cocktail I probably ever had in my life was at uh, Flatiron Lounge. I think that was a Julie Rainier venue. I don't know if she's still involved in it. Isn't it amazing, by the way, how you know the modern cocktail scene in New York is, you know, in, in large part due to two women, you know, Audrey Saunders and Julie Rainier. Of course, Audrey Saunders, I think, trained under Dale DeGroff. 
Um, and Dale DeGroff was at the Rainbow Room under Joe Baum, or with Joe Baum, he was the owner. But, you know, it's it, in a era where we call for more women at the upper echelons of restaurants, it's, it's awesome that two of the progenitors of our modern cocktail scene have been women. I think that's kick-ass. Uh, so I was at the Flatiron Lounge. It was the first time I ever paid a lot for a cocktail. It could cost me 12 or $13, probably $12. It was in 2004. And uh, I was kind of curious about it. But my, my friend Dave, hey, you know, meet some girls here. Have a good time. So I'm like, all right. Dave doesn't talk like that, but I think it sounds, the story sounds better if I, if I say it like that. And so I had to drink cold How do the, the girls talk? That's the real question. Hey, you know, hey, we're from Long Island. <laughs> I, I, Dave is actually from Iowa. Hey, we're just here to have some drinks. You know, you want to party with us? Anyway, so I had a drink called the Eden. Uh, the Eden is, I believe it was Plymouth Gin, uh, Campari, to round things out, um, lemon juice, and rose syrup. And uh, it was absolutely fantastic. So it shaken, of course, and strained. And I remember, you know, that exotic Middle Eastern flavor of the rose syrup. I remember the, the tannic aspect of the rose syrup and the Campari. I remember the strength of the gin and the bracing sourness of the lemon juice. And to me, that just opened my eyes into a world of cocktails. And, and that, to me, uh, just launched my, my fascination with it. And, you know, people complain about $20 cocktails at places like ZZ's. My response is always, well, it's using the best ingredients. And w- when were you complaining when you were drinking that $20 glass of champagne? You know, especially because that glass of champagne was made a thousand miles away, people you never met. But yet this, this cocktail that Thomas Wads, he's clam bar, he, he made it right in front of you. Perhaps you're the only person that night to order that cocktail. If not for you, that cocktail wouldn't have been made that night, whereas that champagne was always made and had been made years ago. The champagne is just as magical, but the cocktail is just as magical as well. And, and it was made to you by a hardworking person, and, uh, and it takes labor. The champagne took labors too, but you get to see the labor in front of you with the cocktail, and you get to see what ingredients they were made with, and they put the bottle right in front of you, and you get to taste it. And if you didn't like it, well, maybe they can add a little bit more simple syrup. It's tailor-made to you, the individual, and that's what's so magical about a cocktail, and that's why I love them so much. It feels a bit more unique in a way. Without a doubt, it feels entirely unique. Uh, when you read, I, I think it was, was it Dale DeGroff who wrote The Art of Mixology? Was that his book? I'm not sure. Uh, the Craft of the Cocktail, perhaps? Uh, but anyway, the first big cocktail book I read was by Dale DeGroff. Sorry I'm misquoting the name of his book, but I remember him, I think it was he who wrote about how a good bartender will know how each individual patron likes their ratio of strong to sour to sweet. You know, the strong being the hard liquor, the sour being the sour elements, such as citrus, and the sweet being the simple syrup. And that's, of course, in a usually a shaken or sour-based cocktail like a, like a daiquiri or a gin fizz or a last word or a, or a corpse reviver. You're talking about classic recipes. Is that something that you like to follow, too? I mean, because there's different kind of vibes of cocktail. You know, there's guys coming up with completely new stuff. There's this whole thing about my riff or my take on a classic. And then there's the classics. And then there's finding the right ingredients for some of those classics. I mean, where do you, where do you find yourself gravitating? Sometimes oh. people just get neat, you know. Some people do, uh, sometimes people just get neat liquors. And uh, it was Del Posto when I... Uh, in terms of the great cocktail bar programs of this country, um, I think of Momofuku and I think of Del Posto. I could probably name more few, but those are the two I like. And, uh, and, and they both serve very strong classics, and they also are both very strong on uh, the new drinks. 
what Booker and Dax is doing, which is part of the Momofuku Empire, I think is really important for the, the future of drinking, the future of cocktails. Because un- unlike, say, a Death and Company, which is hugely important, at Neo Speakeasy, which uh, they're about kind of pushing the limits in a different way, you know, infinite riffs on classics by mixing base spirits, which some people, including myself, would frown upon, you know, mixing, you know, rum with bourbon. Uh, I don't find a need for that myself. In fact, I actively discourage it, but you know, it, it works for Death and Company and they, and they make a lot of great cocktails. Uh, I prefer, I think, what they're doing at, at Booker and Dex in terms of using, not so much mixing base spirits, but using advanced techniques to make the drinks we already drink better, the way they carbonate a gin and tonic. And so you're not diluting uh, the tonic, the carbonation of it with gin, you're carbonating itself. I, I, I a couple of years ago, I tried carbonating myself, in fact. It's incredibly complicated. I tried carbonating gold rushes. A gold rush is a cocktail. It's a mix of honey, lemon juice, and bourbon. So I pre-batched it, and you have to figure out the ratio of strong to sour to sweet, you know, well in advance. Uh, you have to clarify it a little bit because you don't want sediment. And I put in a penguin. I broke my penguin, of course, but I did carbonate it. The problem was, and one of the problems was, I, I didn't realize how uh, acidic carbonic acid was, what CO2 was. And I almost ended up burning my tongue. And I did burn my tongue when I tried carbonating gin. Uh, they do it Brooker and Dax, and you know, it's not just you know sticking a CO2 tank into gin and tonic. It's finding the right ratio of of carbonation to put in there. And I think they also use a little bit nitrous oxide, which isn't as harsh. Uh, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. And so th- that type of cocktailery is hugely important. So the fact that you can get a gin and tonic, which is an average cocktail, something that hasn't evolved uh, too much, and the fact that they can serve it in a champagne glass and give it that vibrant acidity and, and keep the integrity of both the tonic and the gin, uh, to me, that's that's nothing short of revolutionary. And that's why I think you know what David Arnold do in large part is is the future of the cocktail. And what about people uh, doing riffs on classics? Is that something that you like to experiment with, or uh, would I'd, you like I'd, to see just better technique? Uh, I love riffs on classics, and I love classics. I think John DeBarry at Momofuku as well, and uh, he does a lot of their regular bar programs. I think he's one of the best bartenders in the country. I really like him. Uh, I think he's really schooled in the classics, a uh, really cool guy. He used to be at PDT, of course, another great place. And I like them all. I love PDT. I love Momofuku. And uh, I, you know, I often tell people, you, know, you ask about the classics, I would love stronger classics. I would love if I can walk into a place. It would warm my heart if I could walk into Tao. I think Tao is is not a good place to eat. But instead of serving these little silly sex on the beach style cocktails with Stoli blueberry or whatever, wouldn't it be great if you could walk into Tao and order a perfect daiquiri, order a great Manhattan? Uh, I think that would that would melt my heart if I could get something like that. But it would also melt my heart if if more of these regular restaurant bars, you know, emphasize the classics uh, at the at the higher end. Uh, one of my favorite cocktails ever that's was the Duke's Martini, and uh, I remember Levy used to work at a restaurant called Convivio where they served a lovely Duke's Martini. I have so many stories about that drink, uh, none of which are, are appropriate for a, a program that children could listen to. Um, but the lovely thing about the Duke's Martini. Uh, is that, of course, a regular martini uh, is shaken or stirred, and you get that 30% dilution that you want out of a good martini. But of course, if you chill vodka, and you, or if you chill gin and you put it in the freezer, it develops a lovely viscous-like quality, and that's what a Duke's martini is. You take that vodka or gin, you put it in the freezer, and you pour it into a glass that's just washed out vermouth. I believe it was bergamot-infused vermouth at Convivio, so it had this really heady, aromatic, citrusy flavor, and you poured the chilled, viscous gin into this vermouth watch glass. And it's a it's it's heavy at first in the palate and then it just dissolves in the thin air. You don't get that 
strong sting of alcohol. It's it's the perfect amount of alcohol. It's almost as if the uh, the ice of the gin numbs your tongue to how powerful it is. And at good restaurants, like at or at good bars, like the Duke's Bar in in Great Britain, I believe you can only have two of them, and I believe they actually bring you your check after uh, the Duke's Martini. Uh, I've seen someone after two Duke's Martinis, not myself, and uh, it was uh, an experience I can't describe here. Uh, I, I remember once, well, I'll keep that story to myself. <laughs> I, I believe it has to do with the Dukes of Hazard. Probably, <laughs> perhaps, maybe. But that was a tricky drink to uh, to serve because we didn't necessarily have a freezer near the bar. So that was always an interesting uh, one too, to, to like get it frozen and then get it. So we can serve it, you know. So. And it's and it's a beautiful service because at you know at uh, even at Love Madison Park they did a nice Duke's Martini for a while. So I'd bring out the traditional cart and you know gin or vodka. Do you want the lemon peel? And it's you know pomp and circumstance. That's beautiful, and that's one of the great things about cocktail. You get to watch it, and you get the transparency. You get the you get to see the bottle of Plymouth gin in front of you, and you know you're getting the Plymouth gin. And you know it it, it breaks my heart. Uh, when I see so many restaurants serve me a full glass of wine, you know, one of the worst beverage experiences I had this year, and I wrote about it, was at Oya in in Boston. And again, they're known for having one of the the world's better or the country's better sake programs. But every single drink I ordered there, I just came to me as a full glass. There was no. They didn't give me a chance to taste. They didn't give me a chance to taste, and they didn't show me the bottle. And you know, people ask me, you know, what does it matter? You know, well, it, it matters to me. It matters because I'm paying that much. The uh, tasting menu there is $285 per person. I think the wine pairing is probably about 150 the sake pairing that much. So it's a, it's a lot of money. It's one of our most expensive restaurants. And especially to someone who is, listen, I don't read up about sake every day. I don't read up about wine every day. I want to know what I'm getting. I want a context behind it. You know, if if you give me two different bottles of sake, and yeah, I can probably taste the difference between them, but I know I can taste the difference between them if you give me something else to pin that memory on. If you tell me this guy, you know, gets up at 4 a.m. every morning to polish his rice and then he, you know, goes to bed at, you know, at, at 3 in the morning. He only gets two hours of sleep or whatever because that's the story and that's what we associate things with. And beverages, just like food, are not simply about what we taste. It's about learning about uh, the hardworking people who bring us these beverages. And so if you if you just pour us a full glass of wine, you're, you're, you're not just disrespecting the fact that I can't taste it for First, you're disrespecting all the people who have made this. And I know not everyone wants, you know, an eight-minute story about, you know, this guy put a, a worm on his bait hook so he could catch the bluefin tuna off the coast of East Africa. Not everyone wants that, but you need to learn to read your table and to, and to know that certain people want to know more about these these spirits. And so I was disappointed I, I, I didn't get that experience at, at Oya because instead of getting uh, incredible wine or sake with great context, I simply just got expensive beverages. Do you find a different culture between the wine and the cocktails, even at the finest establishment? Yeah, well, uh, quite frankly, it's uh, the wine simply pairs better with food. You know, that's one of the, uh, and there's simply no two ways around it. And maybe they'll get cocktails that pair better with food in the future. But still, you know, you know, wine is king. You know, some chefs make fun of me sometimes. Uh, and this usually happens when I eat too much food or they serve me too much food. Uh, I usually like to get a Manhattan at the end of my meal uh, because I like the way it, at least psychologically, helps the food move through the stomach. You know, way back when, there was always the belief that, you know, the Norsemen believed that um, by doing shots of Calvados over the course of a long meal, it would burn a hole in their stomach, you know, bloodletting sort of, and it would allow them to eat more. 
you know, just the same, I think the modern French believe that a digestif helps open up the duodenal sphincter and helps the food move through the stomach. Now, is, is, is that physiologically true? I don't know, but it makes me feel better. If nothing else, the, uh, the strong alcohol takes off the pain of the hunger and it makes eating a little bit more, slightly more palatable, slightly more possible. And so, yeah, of course, wine is still king in restaurants, but I, I do love a nice Duke's Martini or Manhattan at the end of a long meal. Have you found that the people who are the practitioners in those fields have a different style about them, or is it sort of the same thing? You know, are the sommeliers like the bartenders, or is that a different world? Well, it's it's similar. I mean, of course, the bartenders, a lot of them are creators, whereas the sommeliers and wine directors are, are curators. And I mean that in the most positive sense in the term. You know, I want to go to a restaurant, and I want Dusty Wilson at 11 Madison Park, awesome guy, master sommelier, uh, to find me something I can't get elsewhere. And, you know, as... And, and he always will. And he'll, you know, push the pairing in a different direction. You know, I, I liked how they paired beer with their New England clam chowder. Uh, I wish they served Manhattan clam chowder instead of New England clam chowder, but that's a completely different story. So, yeah, I, I respect that curation. And that's what's awesome about, you know, a good sommelier. Just like uh, when I go to Empeon, I can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure it's true. I used to always ask for a shot of simple syrup or agave syrup on the side of my margarita. And they knew uh, that I like things a little sweeter. So I go to Empeon now, and of course, where I'm recognized, and uh, I don't have to put stuff in my margaritas anymore because I think, I'm not sure, but I think they make them a little bit sweeter for me, and I really appreciate that. By the same token, if I go to, say, Ifiori, uh, I haven't been there in a while, I think it was Emile Galvia or Emile Perrier who does the, uh, the, the wine program there, and she knows I like floral whites, and she always has something for me. And so she, just as the bartender knows what I like, she knows what I like. Uh, I knew that if I went to Chiano, where John Slover used to work, uh, occasionally picks up a shift, I think, at Charlie Bird these days, he knows I want something with a little bit of residual sugar in it. And so I really do like that that relationship with the sommelier. And, you know, I, and I like that John Slover and Emile Galvio or Pallier, I love how they uh, they, they know what I like, and they know the taste and, and cost of the, uh, of the patron. And, and that's an awesome thing because that's a, it's a curated experience. And, and that's, to me, sometimes is a better experience than the, the didactic, okay, this is the wine pairing, this is what I, we're giving you. But, of course, that's, uh, it could also be a nice thing because sometimes you do need to have that didactic experience to be pushed out of your comfort zone. And so I'm, I'm being somewhat hypocritical, but not entirely so. Sometimes you know what you want, and some way I can pick it for you, and sometimes you just have to put yourself in their hands and say, this is what the restaurant is doing. Try this. We think you'll like it. Has there been a different audience that has developed to these two fields, cocktails and wines, based on price? Or is it something else that's drawn different people to them? Or are they the same people in terms of the customers who come in the door? Oh, gosh, I don't know. That's, that's, you know I'm sure a, a restaurateur or a wine steward could probably answer that question better than I can. But, you know, it's funny. I always joke with my, you know, one of my frequent dining companions. You know, I often tell them, you know, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm here to review the, the food. I'm also here to, to sample some of the cocktails and wine, but not entirely so. And he says, hey, you know, why don't, we, uh, why don't we try some Johnny Walker Black, see if it's just as good here as at the other place. And I'm like, you know what, man, Johnny Walker Blacks tastes just the same at WD-50 as it does at, you know, per se. So maybe let's skip on the Johnny Walker Black. But I do like how higher-end cocktails is another way to get people in the door who don't normally drink wine. You know, you know, some of my friends only drink cocktails. And if we can 
uh, give them a high-end restaurant experience with cocktails just as a sommelier can give them a high-end restaurant experience with wine, and then you've just won over someone with fine dining. It was monumental when uh, Per Se hired Brian Van Flandered when it first opened, and he started making his house-made gin and tonics with his house-made tonic. It was more of a gin fizz than a gin and tonic, but it was a pretty tasty cocktail. And I don't think, I could be wrong, but I, I think they were one of the, the, the first high-end restaurants to emphasize cocktails. Even though people weren't necessarily doing cocktail pairings, they were, they were the, that was probably one of the first high-end gin and tonics in, in any city, uh, in any restaurant in the city. And, they, and they, they were doing some nice stuff back when they first opened. I'm, I'm sure they still are. And so it's cool that now you can you know, go to Danielle. I remember I sat at the bar once at Danielle, and I didn't necessarily want a glass of wine. They made a great cocktail for me. I did the, the tasting menu at the bar, and whoever's doing the, the bar program there finished my meal, finished my tasting menu by doing these little calcium alginate pearls of Cointreau. It was really neat, and that was actually my, my impromptu dessert course. It was little you know, Cointreau. It's an orange-infused orange spirit, or an orange spirit, an orange liqueur, uh, foolproof, I believe. I think it's 80% 80, uh, 80 alcohol, or 40% alcohol, 80 proof. And it was little caviar of Cointreau. I thought this was absolutely delicious. And so I, you know, I, you had Robert Simonson in the program, and, and he was talking about how it's great that, you know, this is one aspect of dining. We have this high-end wine, high-end food. Let's, let's bring cocktails into the mix as well. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with him. I think he's one of our best cocktail writers. And I, and I think he said it best. Uh, cocktails are, are increasingly becoming at the level of, of wine and food in good restaurants. And that brings in a, in a whole other class of people, which is awesome. Ryan Sutton, he appreciates fine Caspian caviar and fine Cointreau caviar. He's a writer for Bloomberg about restaurants, wine, and cocktails. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Ryan Sutton of Bloomberg News. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.